Okay, with that in mind, if you're ready, I am. <clears throat> we come then to our fourth session in our conference on the distinctives of the Reformed faith, and we want to, in this session, to look at Christ's governing of his church. We have already considered the sovereignty of God as a distinctive of Reformation Christianity, the God who made all things and owns all things and controls all things, who will judge all things, and therefore uh, in the realm of redemption we give him all the glory and praise because he has graciously called us to be his own. Uh, we who follow the Reformed understanding of Christianity believe in predestination. We do not find that an embarrassing doctrine. We find it a very comforting doctrine. We find it something that leads us to praise God for his grace. We've seen, secondly, that the way in which God has brought redemption to his people in history is covenantal. God has made a bonded relationship between himself and his people. He has sovereignly transacted it, and he's called on his people to trust him, to believe his promises, and to obey the stipulations of the covenant. We believe that the people of God are one in all ages, even as God's covenant of grace is substantially one in all ages. In the Old Testament, the people of God were the Jews and those who would be converted to that outlook and be circumcised. We believe in the New Testament, the people of God, the new Israel of God is the church of Jesus Christ. We do believe there's continuity between Old and New Testament then. We believe that the church is the new Israel, that our children are covenanted to God um, because of our faith in him and following of him, even as the children of Abraham or the children in the Mosaic administration were covenanted to God as well. We believe that the moral principles of the Old Testament continue to bind us today unless God himself teaches otherwise. We do believe, therefore, in the continuity of God's promise and covenant throughout history. So we have a view of God's sovereignty, a view of God's covenant, and in our last session we saw that we have a distinctive view of our Christian living in the world that is basically characterized by freedom of conscience. We are free to live in this world and enjoy it. In fact, we are called upon to be involved in all areas of life for the glory of God and to bring the saving mercy and the kingship of Jesus Christ to bear upon all areas of life. And no man has the right to bind our conscience to teach us that there are more rules, right and wrong, that have to be added to what God himself has given us in his word. And, of course, that has brought political liberty as well, since God alone is Lord of the conscience. When political tyrants have said to God's people they must do things contrary to what God would have them to do, they have always replied, we must obey God rather than men. And they've had the freedom to do that. And they've had the integrity to do that because they believe there is a law above the law of the state to which we answer. We believe that God is the Lord of the conscience and therefore men may not tyrannize us and may not in the church or in the state add to what God himself has given for the basis and guidance of our living in this world. Well, now having said all that about God's sovereignty and about God's covenant and about the affirmation of this world that we find in the Bible, would it not seem supremely bizarre to you that the Bible would not have anything to say about life in the church? Would it not seem extremely out of character 
For the God who controls all things and expects us to glorify Him in all things and gives us guidance for living in this world and all areas of life to have just become very silent then when it comes to the church of Jesus Christ and how it should be organized and how it should worship Him and what it should be all about. The Bible teaches us that Jesus Christ is head of the church, that He is the sovereign, He is the king, He is the one that is served by the church. He is the Lord. We are his servants. Christ is the head of his church. Now having said that, have we said enough? Have we really gotten at all that the Bible would have us understand by the church by simply in that formal, abstract way saying, well, Jesus is head of the church, whatever that means. Or has Jesus given to his church, his own body, a way of living and worshiping and governing itself to which we are responsible. I think, sadly, in our day and age, most Christians act as though the answer to that question is, well, we're on our own. It may be the church of Jesus Christ. He may be the head of the church. But the way in which the church operates and the way in which the church worships God and the way in which the church disciplines itself and is governed is really up to us. It's really... um, you know, every man's guess, or if you will, it's uh, every man's choice as to what organization we would follow in the church and what kind of government we would have in the church. Let's look at a couple of those passages that tell us that Jesus is the head of the church. Ephesians 1, verses 22 to 24. Ephesians 1, at the 22nd verse. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him to be head over all things for the sake of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. Here Paul says Jesus is actually head over all creation. He's head over all things for the sake of the church. Now we know that the fact that Jesus is head over all creation, Lord over all means, that in every walk of life, men are to obey him and his commandments. So again, I renew my question. Would it it not be strange that Jesus should lord it over all areas of life and be head over all things for the sake of the church, but have nothing to say to the church? Now, the way you worship, that's up to you. You know, whatever makes you feel good, whatever seems popular, whatever seems culturally acceptable, then that's the way you worship me. And the way you govern yourselves, the way you resolve disputes, the way you discipline unruly or unholy behavior in your midst, well, that's up to you too. I really don't care about those things. Jesus rules everything for the sake of the church. How can he not care then about the organization and the operation and the governing of his own body? What kind of king would it be that says, well, I'm a king, but I don't have any rules. I'm a king, and so you can do anything you want to do. I'm a king, and so I don't care what my subjects do or how they relate to each other, how they resolve their disputes. That, of course, would be absurd. And yet, that is the very condition of most Christian churches today. So many Christians are willing to say, well, this question of church government, ah, how important can that be? To which I always say, well, how important is the headship of Jesus Christ over all things? If you think that Jesus is head over all things and has not taught a government for his church, then I wonder, what do you mean by headship? 
And if you believe that Jesus is head of the church and has taught a, a particular approach to government in his church, then who are we to disagree? If Jesus requires a particular kind of organization and government in his church, where do we have the right to say, well, Jesus, that was fine way back then, but see, we've got some modern ideas now. We've got a different way of going here. Nobody that I know that follows a non-Presbyterian form of church government has the audacity to say those things. But many people I know have the audacity to live as though it were true. In Ephesians 5, verses 23 and 24, Paul again refers to Jesus as head of the church. For the husband is head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, being himself the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives also be to their husbands in everything. <clears throat> How would you like it if we were to apply the kind of take-it-or-leave-it attitude toward church government that we see in ecclesiastical circles and use that by analogy to what we mean by the headship of the husband over the wife? Paul says the fact that the husband is head means the wife obeys her husband in all things. But now when it comes to the church, Jesus being out of the church means the church does whatever it wants. You see, it doesn't make any sense at all. I dare say this may be one of the most prevalent heresies, one of the biggest blotches on the testimony of the church of Jesus Christ in our generation, that the whole question of the organization, worship, and governing of the church is considered completely irrelevant. Be like a wife going to her wedding and swearing and vowing that she shall submit to her husband and be a good Christian wife, but then say, but I don't care what my husband says or how he thinks the house should be organized. That's really quite irrelevant. But oh, of course, I am his wife. I submit to him in all things. Well, submission in all things means nothing if you don't think there's anything that you have to submit to. Jesus is the head of the church and he has ordained a particular kind of government in the church. And I'd like to take just a few moments to show you what that government is, as the Bible teaches us. I hope I've convinced you sufficiently that we cannot ignore what the Bible teaches us about the governing of the church. Turn in your Bibles to Titus, the first chapter, verses 5 to 7. Titus, chapter 1, verses 5 to 7. Paul says, For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that were wanting, and appoint elders in every city, as I gave thee charge. If any man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having children that believe, who are not accused of riot or unruly, for the bishop must be blameless as God's steward, not self-willed, not soon angry, not, no brawler, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but given to hospitality, a lover of good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding to the faithful word which is according to the teaching that he may be able both to exhort in the sound doctrine and to convict those who gainsay it. Notice, first of all, that Paul says that the organization of the church is under elders. He doesn't say one elder. He doesn't say that one man rules the church. He says, I gave it to you to appoint elders, plural, in every place. And having spoken of elders in verse 5, in verse 7, he refers to the very same people because now he's continuing the qualifications for office. And now he uses the term bishop in your English translation or in the Greek overseer. Those that are elders are the same as those who are 
bishops, according to Paul. And this is very important, therefore, that we see that in what is usually called the Episcopalian form of government, the mistake has been made that there are some elders that have a higher rank than other elders. They are called monarchial bishops, king-like bishops. They are, if you will, the elder over other elders. But that is not Paul's point of view. For him, anyone who is an elder is the same as a bishop. The qualifications for office are the same. These two terms are simply interchangeable for the very same office. There is no distinction, therefore, between elders and bishops. You see the same thing in Acts 20, verses 17 and 28. Turn in your Bibles to Acts, the 20th chapter, at the 17th verse. Paul says there, or we read Luke saying, And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. But now jump down to verse 28. Paul says, Take heed unto yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you bishops to feed the church of the Lord which he purchased with his own blood. So Paul calls the elders to himself and he addresses them as bishops. And so in the history of the Reformation churches, those that are Calvinistic, those that are called Reformed, have resisted the idea that you have a hierarchy in church government. You have something above the elder, namely a bishop, who oversees and governs the elders. The elders just are the bishops, according to the teaching of the New Testament. They represent the same office in the same order. Moreover, in the history of Reformed Christianity, it has been thought important that each congregation and each center of leadership, be it the Presbytery or whatever, as we'll see in a minute, each congregation and each center of leadership is to have a plurality of elders. Uh, notice what we see in, um, well, we're in Acts, Acts 20, verse 17. And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders plural. Or turn in your Bibles to uh, Acts 14, verse 23. And when they had appointed for them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord. Elders, plural, are appointed. Repeatedly we see this in the New Testament. There is never a situation in the New Testament where one man, one elder, rules the congregation or any other group of elders for that matter. Philippians 1.1. 1, 1. <clears throat> at the opening of this epistle to the church at Philippi, we read, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus that are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, plural again. And so, from a reform standpoint, we believe that Jesus has not only appointed elders to govern in the church that are not separate from bishops, as though bishops were a higher office, but he has appointed a plurality of elders for each church. Reformed churches have always been loath to the idea that one man should govern the church. We do not believe that it is healthy or right for there to be one man that governs other men in the church of Jesus Christ. Christ alone is head of the church, and he appoints for the governing body of his congregations 
a plurality of leaders, a plurality of elders or bishops, if you will. We do not believe in one-man rule. Now, what happens in those churches which do not follow the Reformation approach to church government? Well, I dare say what happens, whether you have people that have a good heart or not, you may have kindly tyrants, but what you end up with is tyrants. On the one hand, you get very wicked men like the Roman Catholic Pope, one man at the top of the hierarchy, taking the place of Jesus Christ, really, who alone can rule the church and all others answering to the Pope rather than answering as a plurality of elders to Jesus himself. So we see that kind of tyranny in the Roman Church. But I wonder, do we see it also? An evangelical, Bible-believing, fundamentalist, Baptistic churches? I'll imagine that many of you have had that experience where you know that there is a local pastor, even if he has other pastors with him, there's a local pastor that has such a strong personality and is such a position because of the organization of the church that he's able really to rule the roost. He really rides roughshod over people when he wishes to do so. Now, he may be a wonderful man. Many people may say, well, we have a tyrant, but he's a benevolent tyrant, so we like him. But Jesus doesn't like that because Jesus hasn't organized his church in that way. We do not believe in one-man rule. And when you have one-man rule, whether you actually see it in practice or not, logically, in principle, what you have is tyranny. And somebody says, oh, well, then you think Jesus is a tyrant because he's the one man at the top? Well, I don't have any problem if someone wants to say that. Jesus does have despotic rule over the church. It is his body. If anyone dares to say otherwise, then they have the Apostle Paul to deal with, not me. But, apart from Jesus, no man has the right to claim that kind of authority. The Pope doesn't, nor does the local Baptist minister. Because the rule of the church is vested in the hands of a plurality of elders. The Bible tells us that these men have oversight of the church. We saw that in Acts 20, verse 28. We see it also in 1 Peter 5, verses 2 and 3. The eldership governs and oversees the church. 1 Peter 5, verses 2 and 3. Peter says um, to the elders, verse 1, The elders therefore among you I exhort, who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Tend the flock of God which is among you, exercising the oversight, not of constraint, but willingly according to the will of God, nor yet for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as lording it over the charge allotted to you, but making yourselves examples to the flock. Elders had not been given to lord it over the flock. They had been given in tandem as a body of leaders to give oversight and guidance and discipline to the church. We are responsible to obey our elders according to the Bible. Hebrews 13, verses 7 and 17. Hebrews 13, verses 7 and 17. Remember them that had the rule over you, men that spake unto you the word of God, and considering the issue of their life, imitate their faith. In verse 17, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit to them, for they watch in behalf of your souls, as they that shall give an account, that they may do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. 
How many Christians do I know who say, no one rules over me in the church? I'm on my own. In fact, many would say, why do we even need the church? But that's another issue for another day. But those who go to church, they don't care at all about the notion of government in the church. And yet the Bible says, obey those who rule over you. They do it for the sake of your soul. Don't make it grievous to them. And so here's a commandment that really has no fulfillment in the life of many of God's people because they don't believe in submission. They don't believe that they have to answer to elders. They don't like that idea. In fact, it, it, it threatens them. It might bind their freedom in a way which actually the Bible says it should be bound. But they don't like that. They don't want to have to answer to men in the church. They lament the fact that the church is an undisciplined body in our day and that, well, I won't have to mention names, but you know the scandals that have come upon us, those who name the name of Christ, and then they do these wicked things and there's no disciplining of them. We lament that sort of thing and yet we go to churches that don't have any structure, don't have any mechanism or oversight for discipline, and don't have people that would submit to it even if there were. To be a member of the church of Jesus Christ is not some ethereal, abstract, spiritual thing that's out there saying, well, in some way I'm connected to the body of Christ. It is very concrete. It is just as visible as is any other political order in this world. And the way in which that political order is organized is according to the word of God. And the way in which one enters it is by submitting to the authority of the elders. It is not simply a matter of saying, I believe in Jesus Christ and I belong to him and I'd like to have fellowship with his people. It is also to say, I will obey those that have the rule over me. I will submit to what Hebrews 13 teaches and what Acts 20 teaches and what 1 Peter 5 teaches. And I will not go through the New Testament with scissors and paste and decide that I can cut those passages out and ignore them because that isn't really the model of Christianity all around me today. The biblical pattern of church government is that there is a plurality of elders who are the same as bishops and they have the oversight in the church and God calls upon those who are members of the church to submit to their authority. To obey those who have the rule over us. The Bible also teaches us that there's an office of deacon in the church. We read this in Philippians 1.1, which we've already looked at. Paul addresses all of those who are saints at Philippi with the elders and the deacons. The origin of the office of deacon, you can read for yourself in Acts the 6th chapter. The deacons have been ordained by Jesus Christ to be a helping ministry for the elders. So that the elders can... Uh, focus the majority of their attention on the teaching of God's word and counseling and prayer, the deacons are there to assist in the ministry of mercy, waiting on tables, helping the widows, taking care of the ministry of mercy in the church. Now, how do we get these officers in the church? One way in which we might get the officers is by having a pope that appoints them all. But we've already seen that there is no room for a pope in the New Testament church because only a plurality of elders um, governs. The Bible teaches us, especially if we look at Acts, the sixth chapter, and the model of the deacons being chosen there, the Bible teaches us that office bearers in the church are nominated and elected by the members of the congregation on the one hand, 
and yet they are examined and confirmed by those who are already officers on the other hand. You have two things going on here in what's called Presbyterian form of church government. Nobody gains rule, either as a deacon or as an elder, in the church of Jesus Christ without the congregation wanting that person to be a ruler. We don't have officers imposed upon the church. The church, rather, looks out among itself and finds men full of the Spirit that have these qualities that are laid down in the Scripture. Men who are already doing the work of guiding and ministering mercy to people. And the church says, we want to submit to those individuals. We will follow them in their leadership in these matters. And so the church must choose its own officers. And yet the church... The membership of the church may not choose officers which are unorthodox, which do not hold to the pattern of sound words that are taught in the Bible. And that's why we see that in every case in the Bible, officers have to be examined by those who are already officers to make sure that their theological orthodoxy is evident. Uh, in 1 Timothy 4, verse 14, we can take one example of that. 1 Timothy 4, verse 14. Paul now speaks to Timothy and he says, Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. You see, Timothy didn't just simply say, Well, you know, I think I'm called to the ministry. I'll go start a church somewhere. Rather, the presbytery laid hands on Timothy. And in so doing, not only showed its approval of his ministry, but indicated that the Holy Spirit was upon him to do his work. The laying on of the hands of the presbytery is crucial to a well-ordered, biblically-guided church. Men do not take the office to themselves. The book of Hebrews says, with respect to the priesthood, but the principle applies to any officer among God's people, no man takes the office upon himself. And so you have the people of the congregation looking out among themselves, finding men that they trust who are spiritually mature, and they nominate them to office. And then the ruling body of elders, the presbytery, those who are presbyters, examine that person to make sure that he's sound in the faith, and then they lay the hands upon him that he is to rule in the church. This is basically what we mean by Presbyterian government then. There are no monarchical bishops that rule over God's people. One man rule is excluded. And also, Presbyterianism rejects the idea of congregational independency. The idea that every congregation, just in a democratic way, can elect anybody they want to be their rulers. They may nominate and elect those who they are willing to submit to, but the presbytery must oversee and govern those who are put into office. Moreover, the Bible teaches us, and the model is found especially in Acts, the 15th chapter, the Bible teaches us that what is the discipline of one congregation is to be recognized by all other congregations. And that where a dispute arises, then those who are elders in the church of Jesus Christ must in general assembly, that is the general assembly of the elders, must resolve those disputes, whether they be in doctrine or in discipline. So that ideally all churches recognize all other churches' discipline. And all other churches, uh, all churches that have doctrinal differences can have them resolved at the general assembly level of the elders of the church. 
Now, sadly, we've gone our own way for years and years and years. And as you know, the Church of Jesus Christ is splintered into so many different denominations. I look for the day when that trend will be reversed. It will not be in my generation, probably. But the fact is that if we're going to get back to doing things the way Jesus wants us to do, all churches recognize all other churches and have a common governing board, the General Assembly of Elders. The discipline of the church is too important and the glory of Jesus Christ, the head of the church, is too important for us to neglect these matters. The Reformed churches have taught them that Christ, who is the head of the church, has ordained a Presbyterian form of government in his church. They have taught that the perpetual offices within the church are not that of apostle. Apostle, in the very nature of the case, is limited to the first generation of the church. Apostle means that person who is commissioned or sent by Jesus himself. We believe that the perpetual offices in the church are elders and deacons, as we've read in the New Testament already this afternoon. The qualifications for office indicate that those who fill these offices must be males. That is a Reformed distinctive. It's appalling to me how many Reformed churches have lost sight of that and are willing today to tamper with this idea that females may be office bearers or leaders in the Church of Jesus Christ. I do not say that because I have anything against females. And I don't say that because I think Paul had anything against females or that Jesus has anything against females. But it is God's ordained method of governing the church to say that those who would hold office are to be males. And they are to have certain spiritually mature qualities about them. And they are to have certain gifts for rule and teaching in the church. And those who have such gifts and meet these qualifications are then nominated by the people and then approved by the elders, that is to say the session of elders or the presbytery of elders before they serve in the church of Jesus Christ. That is the way Christ governs his church. And those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, I dare say, do not have the freedom to disagree. If this is Christ's church, then it must be governed and directed in Christ's way. I find it interesting, I think particularly... uh, a matter of having a double standard when so many Christians in our day will object that someone will mount the pulpit and preach doctrine that is contrary to what we find in the Bible or approve of things which God forbids in the Bible but then be totally indifferent to the fact that the church in which they worship is not itself governed in the way that Jesus has said the church is to be governed. If this were an optional matter, Jesus would not have spoken to it through his word. But since he has spoken to it, it behooves us to pay attention. The third point in your outline, having to do with the church's government, worship, and sacraments, says about the worship of the church now, that it is to be regulated by the word of God. Worship is not a man-made invention. Believe it or not, God does not approve of us going home on Sunday afternoon and trying to dream up new ways of bringing ritual worship to him that he'll find interesting or novel or entertaining. And isn't that the bugaboo in so much of Christian worship today that we think worship is to be entertaining first and foremost? Now, I'm not saying that worship has to be dull. It has to be something that you can't listen to or something you have no interest in or involvement in. But what I am saying is that what counts as worship has nothing to do with its entertainment value. 
For you see, when you come to church to worship, you are not the audience. God is. And what we do in worship is to be pleasing to Him and guided by Him. We cannot dream up ways of worshiping God that will be acceptable to Him. God alone can tell us what will count as appropriate worship before Him. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 21, section 1, we find the classic description of what is called the regulative principle of worship. And this is one of those distinctives of Reformed Christianity that you need to be aware of this afternoon. The Westminster Confession, chapter 21, section 1 says, The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself, and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. God may not be worshipped in any other way but what he has prescribed. Now we have to understand this very carefully. The confession here is not saying that we may not worship God in ways that he's forbidden. That's true enough. If God forbids us to have a graven image that we bow down to, then obviously we can't do that. The confession is saying more than that. It's not just that we may not do what is forbidden. The confession says we may not do what is not commanded. If God has not given that to us as the way to worship him, we may not fill it in. We may not devise it or create it or imagine it on our own. Indeed, in the Bible, you will read that when men attempted to do that, God reacted in a very severe way. He struck them dead when they brought, as the Hebrew says, strange fire before him. When they came with their own ideas of a ritual that would be pleasing to God. Now, the classic illustration at the time of the Reformation, which I'll use here for teaching purposes was the Roman Catholic Church elevating the host during what we call the Lord's Supper, what they call the Mass. Now, why is it that Roman Catholics, when they would pick up the plate that has the wafer or wafers upon it, why would the priest then elevate the host, hold it up above his head? Because they believed that the wafer was, in fact, the very body of Jesus himself. And if that is, in fact, the sacred body of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, then it can be worshipped. And it was held up as a ritual act of worship, an offering before God. And the Reformers were incensed by that, and I don't blame them a bit. Has God told us in his holy word that we are to venerate the bread of the Lord's Supper and worship it in that way, holding it above our heads? No, he has not. You say, well, he hasn't forbidden it. That's true, he hasn't forbidden it. But the point is that the acceptable way of worshiping God is limited to what he himself has taught. When we bring strange fire before God, when we imagine our own way of worshiping him in some ritual that we think has a lot of meaning, wouldn't that be you know, really religious to do that? God is offended because we are not the ones that are being worshipped and therefore our opinions are irrelevant. Only God's opinion about worship counts when it comes to these matters. Deuteronomy 12.32 
What things soever I command you, observe to do it. Thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it. Remember the excoriating words of Jesus in Matthew 15, verse 9. But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. In vain do they worship me, because what they bring before me is the commandment of men, not what I have asked for. In Colossians 2, verse 23, Paul says, Which things have indeed an outward show of wisdom in will worship and humility in neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. Paul uses the expression will worship here. That is to say, worship that is based in the will of man, in the imagination of man, and he condemns it. And they teach for doctrines what men command, and so in vain they worship me. Will worship that originates in man and not in God. The Reformed churches have always taught, therefore, that worship is regulated by the word of God. That when we come to worship, whatever God has not commanded us to do is forbidden. Is there religious value in having people bring a little sack of silver coins up on Easter Sunday and hanging it on a cross as a way of saying, my sins betrayed Jesus and sent him to the cross? That seems to strike many evangelicals as a, as a fascinating, imaginative, entertaining, somehow religiously somber way of worshiping God. And yet God has not asked for that in his word. And whatever we impute religious, liturgical, ritual value to some act that God has not required of us, we have violated his lordship. We have violated his command to not add to his word. Now notice something here very important. In our last session, I talked about Christian life in the world, and I said whatever God has not forbidden is allowed. If God doesn't forbid us to chew gum or to dance or to drink alcoholic beverage, it is allowed. Now I'm saying when it comes to the worship of God's people and that consecrated, set-aside, holy way that we come together as God's people to worship Him, that within worship, whatever is not commanded is forbidden. Completely different opposite. The regulative principle in the world is, I may do it unless God says otherwise. The regulative principle in the church is, I may not do it unless God tells me to. And that's because God is Lord over worship. And we may not devise for ourselves what will be acceptable to him. Fourthly, this afternoon, in terms of the reformed understanding of the church of Jesus Christ, its government, worship, and sacraments, we would say that in the Reformed churches, the worship of the church is centered on the Word of God. And because it is centered on the Word of God, the worship of Christ's church is not weighed down with elaborate ritual and symbolism, but rather centers on the preaching of God's Word. Whatever counts as worship must be intelligible, it must be for the edification of the body, and it must be done decently and in order. We'll see that if we look at just one chapter of the New Testament and the time that's allotted to us today, 1 Corinthians, the 14th chapter, where many of you will know that what Paul is dealing with here is the whole question and the disruption of tongue speaking in the church on the day of the New Testament. 
And we're not going to get into this afternoon the question of the continuation of the gift of tongues. I don't happen to believe that the gift of tongues was for anything other than the apostolic generation. And I have a set of tapes on that that you can get from Covenant Tape Ministry if you'd like to pursue that more and be challenged by that. I believe that's a, a provable theological conclusion, not just a personal preference. I don't believe tongues are for today. However, what I'm going to tell you about the worship of God's church doesn't rely upon that conclusion. Because even if tongues are valid for today, notice what Paul says about the worship of the congregation, even in a day when tongues were available and were practiced. 1 Corinthians 14, I don't have time to expound the whole chapter, but let's just look at a few verses. First, uh, verses 1 to 5. Paul says, follow after love. Of course, you can't forget that chapter 13 is the love chapter. And he says that love is the greatest thing. And so those of you who are interested in charismatic gifts, don't forget that Paul begins by saying, remember, follow after love. That's the crucial thing. Follow after love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but rather that you may prophesy. That is, Paul says, if you're going to seek the spiritual gifts, seek the gift of prophecy. For he that speaks in a tongue speaks not unto men, but unto God, for no man understands. But in the Spirit he speaks mysteries. But he that prophesies speaks unto men edification and exhortation and consolation. He that speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he that prophesies edifies the church. Now I would have you all speak with tongues, but rather that you would prophesy. And greater is he that prophesies than he that speaks with tongues, except he interpret that the church may receive edifying. We see already at the beginning, then, of Paul's discussion that the crucial point is that the church be edified by the word of God. And even when tongues were practiced, Paul says, I'd much rather that you would prophesy. Tongues may be there, but unless tongues are interpreted and therefore become prophetic, then they don't have near the value of prophecy. Because he who prophesies edifies the church. And Paul says that's what's important in worship is that the church be edified by the word of God. What is Paul's doctrine of worship then? Totally apart from the charismatic gifts. The worship of the church is centered on the preaching of God's word and the edification of the body by that word. Verse 12. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that ye may abound unto the edifying of the church. Whatever is done in the worship of God's congregation is for the sake of the whole body and it's being built up in our holy faith. Verse 15. What is it then? I will pray with the Spirit and I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the Spirit and I will sing with the understanding also. It is important in New Testament worship that we do so in an intelligent way. And I'm sorry if I step on any toes here. I love my Christian brothers. But I'm afraid that so much of what I see as zealous, quote unquote, spiritual worship in the New Testament church, or in the church today, pardon me, is really mindlessness. It's a matter of singing so many choruses over and over that we just kind of tune out and become emotional creatures that are led by the moment and the feeling of that particular experience. Paul says, when I sing and pray, I do so in the spirit to be sure, but I do it with the understanding. The Word of God must guide my singing, my preaching, my praying. It must be something that is understandable and edifying to the body as a whole. Verse 19, Howbeit in the church I had rather speak five words with my understanding 
that I might instruct others also, than 10,000 words in a tongue. Now, I don't say this to be facetious. I'm very serious about this. When I get into discussions with my charismatic Christian brothers and sisters about tongues, I often say to them, I believe that it is provable that tongues are not for today. However, I would be happy enough if you would simply follow this one verse. That you make sure that the proportion of tongue speaking to the preaching of God's word is what? Paul says it's far more important to have but five words in an intelligible language edifying God's congregation than 10,000 words in a tongue. So let's keep that proportion in mind. Let's keep that importance in mind. The point being here that the worship of God's people is centered on the word of God and edification. Verse 24, But if all prophesy and there come in one unbelieving or unlearned, he is then reproved by all, he is judged by all, the secrets of his heart are made manifest. And so he will fall down on his face and worship God, declaring that God is among you indeed. Why is prophecy so important? Why is the preaching of the word so important? Because that convicts men. And that makes them fall on their face before God and say, God is here indeed. Paul has just said, but if you have a service where it's all unintelligible, a matter of tongues, he'll leave saying you're madmen. The worship of Jesus' body is to be the proclamation of his word for the edification of his people so that unbelievers who come in fall on their face and declare the presence of God and not leave saying there are a bunch of madmen here. And then one more verse, the very last verse of the chapter, Paul says, but let all things be done decently and in order. Worship services are not to be times of frenzy and disorganization and chaos. They are not to be everyone speaking, everyone who has something to say popping up and being allowed to do so. They are to be governed assemblies. And they are to be overseen by the elders. And they are to center on the preaching of God's word. This has always been the testimony of the Reformed churches. And then one more thing this afternoon we need to see about the worship of Christ's church in the light of Reformed teaching. According to the teaching of the Protestant Reformers, the sacraments that are administered in the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper, the sacraments are signs and seals of the covenant of grace, and they are effective through the Holy Spirit to bless us or to curse us. You say, now what's so important about that, Dr. Bonson? Well, in the first place, you need to recognize that the sacraments are not simply symbols. They're not simply memorials of the work of Christ. Often in evangelical churches, we have that point of view presented that, well, the sacraments, they really just are a symbolic way of remembering the death of Jesus, like the Lord's Supper, or the cleansing blood of Jesus in baptism. They're just memorials of what Jesus has done. They really amount to nothing more than the preaching of the word in an outward form of symbol. But that isn't the teaching of the New Testament. According to the teaching of the New Testament, the sacraments are signs, they are memorials, they are symbols, but they are also seals. They do something, they seal upon our heart the benefit of the covenant of grace. Or on the other hand, they condemn us when we take the sacraments in an improper way. Look at Romans 4, verse 11. Here, speaking of the sacrament of circumcision, an old covenant sacrament, 
Paul says, Abraham received the sign of circumcision, the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while he was in uncircumcision, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be in uncircumcision, that righteousness might be reckoned unto them. Circumcision is both a sign of something, pointing as a token of something, God's cleansing work, but it's also a seal of the righteousness of faith that saves us. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, you see that Paul looks upon the sacrament as something more than a mere memorial. He says, the cup of blessing which we bless. Is it not a communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a communion of the body of Christ? It is a cup of blessing. This cup actually brings blessing to God's people. It isn't just that they remember Jesus died and so have a sermon preached to them all over again. But in the partaking of the cup, they receive blessing from God. Now you know also in 1 Corinthians that those who were taking the Lord's Supper in an improper way did not receive that blessing and spiritual strengthening, but rather what? They were either sick or they were dying. Jesus was judging his church for the abuse of the sacrament. We cannot then look upon the sacraments as mere memorials, mere symbols or tokens that you can take or leave. They rather seal upon our hearts the benefits of the covenant of grace. They bring blessing and spiritual maturity and assurance of salvation to us. They help us to grow in our holy faith and our commitment to a life of obedience and discipleship to Jesus Christ. And if they do not do that, if they do not bless us, they will curse us. They will make us sick. And in some cases we will die because we have abused the Don't think that the sacrament, therefore, is just a mere token, that it's irrelevant. Now, is this to say that there's some kind of power in the bread or the wine or the baptism water? Does that mean we're committed to the superstitious outlook of Roman Catholic ritualism? No, not at all. Because the power of the sacrament is found not in the element, but in the Spirit of God that accompanies it. The Holy Spirit is the one that seals upon our hearts the assurance of our salvation in taking the Lord's Supper. The Holy Spirit is the one who blesses the person that is baptized and helps them to grow in their holy faith. And it's the Holy Spirit that curses the church and judges it when it abuses the sacrament. So we're not trying to teach some magical idea of the sacraments here. But we do want to get away from the baptistic notion that the sacraments really don't amount to anything more than a token. They are also a seal that will be effective in God blessing us or cursing us. So we do not look upon the sacraments as uh, automatic blessings, as though if you are baptized, then automatically you are saved, or if you take the Lord's Supper, automatically blessing comes to you. We do not hold to the Roman Catholic view of the sacraments, but we don't hold to the idea that there's nothing more to them than a memorial token of what Jesus has done. When we engage in the sacraments at uh, the worship of God's people under the oversight of the elders appointed by Jesus in the church, we are actually gaining the benefits of the Savior in our life. The sacraments strengthen our faith. They strengthen our Christian walk. Notice what Paul says in Romans 6, verses 3 and 4, on that particular matter. Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. Where are you?
are you ignorant that all who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? You were buried, therefore, with him through baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we also might walk in newness of life. Those who partake of the sacraments, in this case baptism, are to walk in newness of life. We are to be strengthened in our faith. We are to walk in newness of life as God's people. And then finally, in the taking of the sacraments, the Bible teaches that we are distinguished from the world. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 21. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 21. Paul says, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and partake of the table of the Lord and of the table of demons. You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons and you cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. When one comes to the table of the Lord, he or she is then set apart from the world. He then, she then, is marked out as belonging to the people of God in covenant with God. And therefore it is crucial that we belong to a church that does serve the sacraments, that does administer the Lord's Supper and baptism and in a regular um, way, not just in an occasional fashion, but sees it as part of the worship of God's people that has been ordained by Jesus Christ as a means of blessing, a cup of blessing that distinguishes us from the world and calls us and strengthens us to walk in newness of life. Well, in this hour, what I have been suggesting to you, I think with the authority of God's word behind it, so it's more than just a suggestion, is that what the Reformed churches have taught about worship cannot be ignored. We can no longer say, well, Jesus is head of the church, but we can do anything we want in the church. The church can be governed in any way we want. The church can worship in any way we want. We can make of the sacraments anything we want. No, rather, we must believe that Jesus, as head of the church, governs his church by his word. And in his word, he has said the church is to be governed by elders, not bishops, not with congregational democracy, but by elders and deacons who meet the qualifications of spiritual maturity, being males. They are to be chosen by the people, but approved by the session or the presbytery. And we see that in God's word, the worship of his uh, people is to be governed by him alone. We may not imagine for ourselves what would qualify as worship pleasing to him. And what he has said is that worship must be intelligible. It must be understandable. It must be centered on the preaching of God's word and for the edification of the body. And we must, in the case of the sacraments, look upon them as not simply that's a token, another preaching of the gospel by means of outward signs, but also seals upon our faith and the benefits of the covenant of grace. In fact, the sacraments are so important that they will either bless the congregation and strengthen it, or the sacraments will be used by God as a way of judging the congregation through the power of the Holy Spirit that is there, operative in the preaching of the word and the administration of the Lord's Supper and baptism. What we have looked at in our four sessions, then, is a very distinctive understanding of Christianity. But I don't believe it's one that's been built up through man-made imaginative schemes. It's not one that comes to the Bible and says, well, it's just Play-Doh that you can make into any form you want. But rather, there is a distinctive view of God in the Bible and his sovereignty, the one who governs all things. There is a distinctive view of redemption in the Bible, that it is covenantal, that God has given a promise and there's continuity 
and his promise and his way of dealing with his people. There's a distinctive view of life in this world where we affirm the physical world and all areas of life as sacred, places where we are to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and honor his lordship. And no one can bind our conscience in this world apart from what God himself has said. And we have a distinctive view of life in the church as well, that it is governed by elders chosen and operating in the way that we have spoken of today. We have a distinctive view of worship as being regulated by the Word of God and centering on the Word of God and a distinctive view of the sacraments as themselves carrying a blessing or a curse depending upon the worthiness and unworthiness of those who come to participate in them. This is what we mean by Reformed Christianity. I trust that you have learned a great deal from this. There is much more to be learned in each of these areas. An hour is not nearly sufficient for any one of those four categories. As you leave this afternoon, I would encourage you to think about whether these matters are optional, whether they're simply matters of, well, there's disagreements among the church and I can pick and choose what I'd like, or whether these are matters that uh, show your submission to the Word of God above all. Tomorrow, on the Lord's Day, I will be preaching on what might be considered a fifth distinctive of the Reformed faith. However, on this matter, many evangelicals would say the very same thing. But it's important that you know that the Reformed faith is a distinctive view of the Word of God and the authority of Scripture. And so tomorrow I will preach to you on the theme, The Bible Tells Me So. And in so doing, I hope to energize and put some authority behind everything that I've been teaching last evening and this afternoon. Because you need to be aware of the fact that we believe these things, not because they are interesting or pleasing to us. We believe these things because the Bible tells us so. And that, in the end, is the final test of whether we are followers of Jesus Christ, whether we abide in his word, and in so doing, learn to be free. Let's pray. We do thank you, our Lord Jesus Christ, that you have called us to belong to yourself, that you have graciously and through the power of your Spirit, drawn us to yourself and given us the gift of faith that we might trust in you and be saved from our sins and know that we will enjoy your presence for all eternity and have everlasting life as well as abundant life now. We thank you for the many blessings that we enjoy as your people. And we do pray that you would bless us with a greater understanding of your word and how you direct us to live in this world and to live and worship in the church. We do pray that you would bless us with a greater understanding and you'd give us a greater heart for obedience, that we would truly desire to submit to you in all things, not just in those things convenient, not just in those things which, according to our preconception, we consider important, but in all things, because you are truly Lord over all. We ask that you would help us to see the goodness of the world that you have made, that you'd help us to see that we are to serve you in all areas of life, that we are to see all parts of life as sacred and not dismiss any of them as secular and unrelated to you and to your holy claims upon us. And we pray that you would bless us in the worship of your body, the church of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would give us a mind that is keen to obey the head of the church, that we would not devise for ourselves ways of worship or ways of government or understandings of our ritual and sacraments that are based upon our own desires or what entertains us or what we think is religiously important. We pray rather that you would discipline our minds and our hearts to worship you as you have seen fit, to guide us to do in your word. We pray you'd give us a greater respect for your word, 
that we might look for the edification of the body of Christ, for the preaching of the scriptures, that we might long for that. We pray that you might bless us as we come to the Lord's table and as we see baptism administered in a biblical way, that we would understand that there is real power in these sacraments, that they are not simply a story that's being told in symbols, but they are ways by which your Holy Spirit is with us to bless or to condemn. We pray that you would give us a heart for obedience in the government of your church, that we would recognize that because you are the king, we cannot devise our own way of being servants. We must rather listen to you and submit to you. We do pray that you would bless us as we live in this world and as we worship in your church, that you would build us up in our holy faith, that your name would be glorified and your kingdom advanced among men. For we pray in your most holy name. Amen. Well, we'll take a few minutes worth of questions, depending on your stamina this afternoon. And these questions can be on this afternoon's sessions or last evening's, or if you will, any other question of theology that I might have something to offer that would be helpful. Anybody at all like to begin? Okay. Psalm singing. Right. Um, <clears throat> what I have been doing in the last four sessions is talking about distinctives of the Reformed churches, and one of them is the regulative principle of worship, which says that worship is to be governed by God's word and not by human imagination. Now, having said that, we have to recognize that there are still um, disagreements that are being worked out among those who are reformed as to how that principle comes to application. And one of the areas where there has been some disagreement is over the question of whether it is permissible to sing uninspired hymns in worship. Some would argue that we are to sing only the psalms that we find in the Bible, whether in the book of Psalms or elsewhere is kind of a, a really a mute point. Um, whether we're to sing only those or whether we may also sing... Um, hymns that uh, were not inspired by God. And my own conviction on that matter is that God has required of us to sing his praise and to edify one another. Those are elements of worship. But the way in which we do that is not an element of worship. That is to say, one can pray silently, one can pray publicly, one can pray uh, in a normal tone of voice or cadence, one can pray in song. One can teach in a normal uh, pattern of speaking. One can teach in song. That what we have here are the elements of worship, edification, teaching, prayer, what have you. But then the mode of doing that maybe normal speech, maybe singing, what have you. And so I do disagree with my brothers who say that if you're going to sing, you can only sing what are the Psalms. Because to say that, they should also say, when you preach, you can only preach by reading from the Bible. But you see, if I can preach to you, a mighty fortress is our God, then I don't see why I cannot sing to you and you to me, a mighty fortress is our God. As long as the content is biblical, then it is legitimate in worship. 
that does not have to be inspired content in our prayers, in our singing, or in our sermons, although everything that we pray, sing, and preach ought to be based upon the Word of God. And so I don't, I don't agree with those who say that our singing is restricted to the Psalms. But I do honor them because uh, those people have been very strong about the regulative principle of worship, which is openly despised and totally ignored by so many Christian churches today. It's just that I don't believe that the Scripture uh, forbids us to sing anything other than inspired um, hymns. Paul himself tells us we are to admonish one another with um, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, which my Christian brothers uh, really would have to translate that uh, to admonish one another with psalms and psalms and psalms. Um, so I don't uh, quite see it that way. Is, well, my question, I guess, exegetically, you probably read Murray's article. Yes, I have. Yes, I know the argument and I disagree with it. Can you tell me why you disagree with that? Well, I disagree with it because there's no evidence that the, um, that the uh, Septuagintal version of the Psalter was divided into the, uh, those three categories, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. I just don't believe that's factually correct. Nor does it appear to me that in the New Testament Paul is restricting himself to a specific Septuagintal reading of the Psalter as governing his vocabulary in that verse. I think that's imported from outside. Now this has been debated in Antithesis magazine, and you may want to pursue that further there, about the whole question of the restriction of our singing to Psalms. But for right now, I think we'll let it go at that and see if there's another question. Was there one here? Yeah, the question has to do with whether dispensationalism and drawing such a uh, sharp and severe distinction between law and grace does not lead to antinomianism. And if I do agree with that, which I do, um, I could not cite sources to that effect. I can cite sources, and I do so in my books and articles and so forth, although, again, I don't try to make it a point of using you know, the public platform to bash my Christian brothers and so forth. So I think I will refrain from giving you names and so forth. And besides, you would get more and more accurate information by looking at the literature anyway. But I will try to point out what the dynamic is that leads dispensationalists to be antinomian. Now, remember as well that antinomianism has many forms. There are many dispensationalists who teach the idea that we are to lead a disciplined, holy Christian life. They would not be antinomians in the licentious sense that you can just go out and do anything you want. However, they are antinomian in the sense that they think that what governs our lives today is only the New Testament, that the moral standards of the Old Testament have passed away with the coming of Christ. And so with their severe distinction between law and grace, then very naturally they are led to that kind of antinomianism because they don't think the Old Testament is important. But then, of course, they face the embarrassment that they don't believe that bestiality is wrong. I mean, they don't believe that bestiality is acceptable, but they have no New Testament basis for uh, declaring that it is wrong. Um, unfortunately, dispensationalists have a tendency to 
to have an arbitrary and smorgasbord approach to the Old Testament. Where it pleases them, they will cite it, but where it doesn't, then they say, well, that's Old Testament, it passes away. And that in itself shows an antinomian spirit, because then the final authority in ethics doesn't prove to be God himself speaking in his word, but you, as you come to the word, deciding on you know, what you're going to pick and choose, that sort of thing. But there's a second way in which I've seen many dispensationalists who have this sharp cleavage between law and grace be led into antinomianism in the more general sense of a loose lifestyle. Often antinomians teach that since the law has been done away with by the redemptive work of Christ, and since we now live under grace, that therefore we don't have to really worry about pleasing God and obeying him and producing good works, because good works don't save us. And since good works don't save us, we don't study the Word of God to find out what is good, what God does require in our behavior and our behavior, excuse me, in our attitudes, and then seek to have it more fully expressed in our lives. There's a real laxity about it because we say, look, we're saved, that's really all that counts. Since we're saved and we're not saved by good works, I don't have to worry about good works. But now what does the Apostle Paul say in Ephesians 2, at verses 8, 9, and 10? We are... Uh, saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And then he goes on to say, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, that he afore prepared that we should walk in them. No, we're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. We are saved to become good people. And so when you have this very strong cleavage between law and grace, and that means that you um, emphasize we are saved by grace and not by good works, and we don't have to pay attention to the law, I think we're also led away from the whole idea of doing good works and trying to please God, thinking, well, all that matters is that Jesus has forgiven me and continues to forgive me. So I do believe that in dispensationalism, this is a generalization which many of you will know exceptions to, because you have good brothers and sisters that are dispensationalists or congregations that are not like this. So I know there are exceptions, but as a generalization, it is true that when you pit law versus grace, what you end up with is a Christian life that tends to be antinomian. Tends to be antinomian. Right here. Uh, in modern times, we, we get the idea, at least a lot of people are speaking about worship being culturally relevant. Is that basically a way of saying we have become existential in the church? Uh, well, whether the desire to have worship be culturally relevant is um, a version of philosophical existentialism or not, I, I won't comment on it. I'm not sure that I see the connection right away. But uh, I do think it's important for us to understand what is right and what is wrong about trying to be culturally relevant in the worship of the church. Um, if a person were to say the regulative principle is my guiding standard for worship, and therefore I don't have to be culturally relevant. That might mean, uh, when I preach about the application of God's word to uh, Christian living, I should really uh, not worry about talking about 20th century problems, those sorts of things that my congregation is going through, the kinds of fears and confusions that people have now. It's perfectly all right for me simply to preach to the New Testament mindset to talk about oxen and sheep and agricultural environments and uh, the sorts of things that bothered people back then. Well, of course, that would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? We are to be culturally relevant in that we preach to the particular audience God has given us, and that means preaching to their needs, preaching to their problems and confusions. That is cultural relevance. Um, what we preach, of course, is what God gives us. 
but the packaging and the application are going to be based upon contemporary circumstances. That, I think, would be terrible for a preacher to say, I don't want to be relevant. I don't have to worry about what my people are going through and what they need. On the other hand, I'm very concerned that by cultural relevance, many preachers and many churches are concerned with what will be culturally pleasing and acceptable. It will seem relevant because this is really more hip. This is really more with it. This is really more in tune with the spirit of our times. Um, to be very honest with you, I don't think that any decision that we make in terms of guiding the worship of the church should be concerned with the spirit of our times. And if you know the spirit of our times, if you know the zeitgeist of our age, we shouldn't want, we wouldn't want to have anything to do with it at all, much less in the worship of God's church. Um, and now what happens is you bring people will bring up an illustration and say, you know, seeking to be culturally relevant in this area is that in the good way or in the bad way? You know, you get these line calls like. What kind of music should we have accompanying our hymns? Does it have to be the music that you find in the 16th and 17th century, or can it be more 20th century in its character? And I would say that the temptation is there to go, you know, the wrong way. Uh, how can I put this? The temptation would be there for some people to be stodgy and say, we don't want to be culturally relevant. That's giving up the regular principle. So we've got to have 16th century hymns. And say, well, but why shouldn't you have 14th century hymns or 8th century hymns or what have you? So that would be a mistaken uh, response to the issue of music in the church. But equally, and this is what I see more often, people saying, well, because we want to be culturally relevant, then we have to have hymns that just sound like what you hear on the top 40 on the radio. You know, and that, I think, would be a, a very confused and mistaken application of the principle as well. It's a lot bigger subject and a lot more slippery than many people realize. Cultural relevance can be something very good. It can also be something very bad. Yes, ma'am. What comprises the covenant? Very good question. Um, a covenant is a bonded relationship that has been ordained by God, has been initiated by God. Now, what kind of relationship is it? What comprises that relationship? Well, in the covenant, God declares first his prerogatives, who he is. And then he declares what he has done for us or what he promises to do for us. So it amounts to God identifying himself, making promise to his people, and then calling on his people to trust him. There is the evangelistic call to faith in his promises and also to follow him and obey his word. And then also uh, God applying to those who hear the preaching of the word blessings and cursings depending upon their response to his claims. So you have God identifying himself, declaring his promise and his grace, calling for trust, calling for obedience, and then sanctioning that either with blessing or cursing depending upon our response. Thank you for asking. That that should have been covered uh, somewhere in my presentations anyway. Yes? Five-point covenant model. How does that apply both to baptism <clears throat> and to the Lord's Supper? Okay, well, now I'm not sure that I'm interpreting you right, but when you say the five-point covenant model, you may be referring to something that's associated with the teaching of Ray Sutton in Tyler, Texas. What I just gave you has nothing to do with the five-point covenant model. So it happens there were five points in what I gave you. <clears throat> but that's just one convenient way to summarize the content of God's covenantal relation with people. Now, how does um, baptism and the Lord's Supper relate to that? 
Well, the covenant itself <clears throat> is symbolized, is, uh, is outwardly, there's an outward token of that covenant that God calls us to in baptism in the Lord's Supper. And so that's part of the stipulations of the covenant, that we are to remember our God in the following way, are to remember the redemptive work of Jesus Christ in the following way. And then, as I said, there are blessings and cursings dependent upon our response to God's covenant, and those blessings and cursings would apply also to the stipulation of the Lord's Supper and baptism. So I would see that the sacraments are subsumed under uh, what I gave you as the stipulations of the covenant and the blessings and cursings of the covenant, or what are called the sanctions of the covenant, be they good or, or bad. Does that help at all, or do you want to follow that up? I guess I should back up and say, what do you see the distinction between what you what the five points that you gave as far as the covenant model and, and that of race that? I mean, it's, it sounds more like you're, it's more like where Klein's coming from. Well, what I gave you um, has been taught by Meredith Klein. There's no question about that. Where I differ with Sutton's approach to the covenant, most importantly, is in the idea that there's only one way of lining it out. See, it's not, it's not so much that uh, Sutton cannot use pedagogically in the church with value what he has said, but I, re I react pretty negatively to the idea that this is the only way to cut the cake. There are many ways to cut that cake and to cover all that God wants us to see. And then secondly, I strongly disagree as a, an interpreter of God's word that this pattern that Ray Sutton thinks he has discovered can be found everywhere in the Bible in the way that he thinks. I think it's imposed like a Procrustean bed rather than found inductively in the study of the Bible. You all know what a Procrustean bed is? You know the story of Procrustus, who when people would come and uh, want a place to, uh, to sleep, uh, he had a bed and he made sure that all of his guests fit his bed. If they were too short, he stretched them to fit the bed, and if they were too long, he cut off their feet so that they fit. <laughs> and I think sometimes theologians make that mistake. They come up with an interesting organizing principle for teaching the truth of God's Word. And even when they are teaching the truth of God's Word, they can't impose it like a Procrustean bed on the Scripture. And so they stretch it and they cut it off to make it fit their preconceived idea. And as much as I... Uh, I would respect uh, much of what uh, Mr. Sutton has taught. I do believe that his, uh, his covenant model is somewhat artificial and has been imposed on the Bible, where it really doesn't fit too well. But, of course, he would disagree with that, and if he were here, he'd have something to say in his own defense, so remember that, too. Go ahead. Do you see the sacraments as flowing uh, out, of the, out of the latter half of the, the covenant model? Well, remember, since there's any number of ways of cutting the cake, when you say, do they come from the latter half of the covenant model, they do on the model that I used. But another way of... Do they flow out of the covenant? It is a unilateral covenant. God declares the terms of it and initiates it, and there's no negotiation on our part. 
so now how does this apply to the question of whether the uh, sacraments flow out of the covenant? Well, just in, in the right partaking of it. Yes, we do. But you see, God has set those standards. And so what God is responding to is whether we submit to his covenant and are covenant keepers or not. And I do, if I understand your question and metaphor, I do think that flows right out of the heart of the covenant, yes. That since God has declared this and has said, these are the signs of my covenant, then um, uh, it, it isn't arbitrary or some historical accident that those who abuse the sacraments are cursed by God and those who faithfully partake of them are blessed of him. That is part of what it means to be in covenant with God. But you see, people can break covenant with God in many ways. It's not just sacramentally that we break covenant with God. I think that when we turn our children over to teachers that hate the Lord Jesus Christ or think they can ignore the word of the Lord Jesus Christ, we break covenant with God. I think that when husbands and wives are unfaithful with each other, they not only break the marriage covenant, but they break covenant with God. And uh, it seems to me that uh, what God requires of me, being in covenant with him, is a very broad range of things, including coming to the Lord's Supper and having my children baptized and so forth. So I, I do think all of that flows out of the heart of what it is to be in covenant with God. Back here. Sure, I believe in Pado communion. Did you want more than that? <laughs> yeah. First of all, you need to understand what Pado communion is, and then also understand why I could, in a tongue-in-cheek way, dismiss it like that. Um, Pado communion refers to having children come to the Lord's Supper. Pado, child, communion. So children at the Lord's Supper. Uh, Presbyterian and Reformed churches hold to what's called pedo-baptism. They believe in baptizing children. And uh, so now the question is, should children come to the Lord's Supper? And unfortunately, in our day and age, there are um, a lot of variations of belief on that matter, and only one particular narrow school of thought seems to think that what it teaches is pedo-communion. And that school of thought says that when a child is baptized, from that point on, whenever the child can physically partake of the Lord's Supper, that child should partake of the Lord's Supper. So that, if you will, that's what I call automatic pedo-communion. That is, there's nothing more required than baptism in order for a child to come to the Lord's Supper. And I do not believe that. I do believe in pedal communion, however, in the sense that I think children ought to come to the Lord's Supper. And I really believe that the Reformed churches ought to encourage their children to come to the Lord's Supper much earlier than they usually do. It is not uncommon for covenant children and Reformed churches to become teenagers even in their late teens before they make an open profession of faith in Jesus Christ and then start taking the Lord's Supper. And I think we ought to encourage our children at a very early age. In the congregation where I was pastor, we did not hesitate to examine children uh, for becoming communicant members of the church at four, five, six years old. I don't have any problem with that. And I wouldn't, in principle, have any problem with even earlier if the children were actually, you know, so educated by their, uh, by their parents and, and willing to come and be interviewed by the elders and so forth. But the real question then becomes, do children or do in, does anybody come to the Lord's Supper simply because they are baptized? And I don't believe the answer is yes.
for adults or children, and therefore those who teach automatic paedo-communion have made a false step theologically in the first place. Secondly, our responsibility is to be biblical on this matter, and if the, um, if the model for the Lord's Supper is uh, Passover, which I think just about any Reformed theologian would tell you, then I would go back and I would argue that as a matter of fact, children did not partake of the Passover until they could ask the question, Father, what do these things mean? And consequently, I do expect, be it a two-year-old, three-year-old, six-year-old, ten-year-old, that the child takes an interest in the meaning of the sacrament before it is served. You say, well, you don't do that with baptism. You say, no, and God didn't say that children had to ask the question before they were circumcised. And so it's by the direction of God. It's the, it, these are distinctions I, I trust are taught by God. So I, I believe that children who are baptized and uh, can in some very minimal childlike way give a profession of faith um, and show an interest in the meaning of the sacrament ought to be admitted to the Lord's table. Um, I have lots of very good friends in denominations that don't practice this, and so I ask their you know, forbearance in my saying this, but I don't believe that children should be required to memorize a catechism and to perform a certain kind of rational, intellectual feat before they come to the Lord's Supper. I believe what is required is that they have very tender hearts that trust in Christ, and that can be discerned without a catechetical examination. Well, I think we've just about... Yeah, I see more questions. One more, and then we're going to stop. Go ahead. Um, do you think we can, uh, can you reconcile civil, be civil disobedience with Scripture, and um, do you think that, that Operation Rescue can be... Oh, and this was the, the quick, easy question that you were going to end with? <laughs> I'll give you a real quick answer. I believe that civil disobedience can be reconciled with Scripture in some circumstances, but not all. I believe that our default setting ought to be, we ought to presume that when we disobey the civil magistrate, we are sinning against God. However, where the magistrate asks us to go contrary to God himself, then we must obey God rather than men. So obviously in the Bible there is some limited and restricted justification for civil disobedience, not at any and all places, but only at those places where we are being told to do something contrary to the word of God. Now, Operation Rescue becomes an even more complicated situation because it has a lot to do with your understanding of uh, the relationship of the fetus to its mother in the way in which we can effectively protect the fetus when that is the biological, physical circumstance, and also what it means to um, disobey the government when it will, by its police powers, enforce the freedom that it grants to people. I do believe in civil disobedience, but I also believe in the rule of law. And I believe that the way we resolve differences with people in society where we disagree is not through the use of violence. And although my brothers and sisters who participate in Operation Rescue deny that they are using violence. They are playing with words. To make your body a physical impediment to someone doing what they freely wish to do is to use violence against them. Violence doesn't mean slashing of knives and blood flowing everywhere after all. Violence means using physical compulsion, be it passive, active, whether it be bloody, unbloody, doesn't make any difference. 
And I don't believe that a Christian view of the resolution of problems in society says that we appeal to violence to do that. We appeal to the law of God and to rational negotiation and to the rule of law to resolve our differences. And that means that in history, I am committed to uh, living peacefully in society even when the society sometimes allows things that I think God would forbid. So now, I live in a society that does not punish abortionists. By the way, just so you don't think I have a light view on abortion, I believe that abortionists should be executed. I don't believe that's negotiable. That's murder. And it's murder of the most defenseless element of our society, the unborn child. And so I have a very harsh, and I think God-given, but a harsh view of the matter. And I'm even open to the idea that not only the abortionist doctor, but the mother who is willing to kill her own child should then forfeit her own life for such a despicable attitude. So I don't have an easy, light-hearted, casual view of the matter. But now having said that, our society, very sadly, has uh, defied the holy laws of God and has said, well, people will be permitted to get an abortion. Now, we say it's under certain circumstances, but everybody knows it's really any abortion you want. Our society allows what God forbids, and I must do everything I can to reform my society, and I must preach the word of God with fervency against mothers who would do that to their children and so forth. But I am not allowed by God to take violence into hand, even it be the limp body violence of Operation Rescue, to impose his will on my society. The way in which we change society is by the preaching of the word, and the changing of people's minds, not by the compelling of them to do what we would have them to do. Well, that's not going to please everybody, but it's something to think about anyway. I want to thank all of you who have come out today and those who were here last evening as well. And I do hope that uh, you will be able to come back tomorrow at 3 o'clock as we uh, conclude our conference with uh, the message, The Bible Tells Me So.